Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Brett Penninger is the Chief Operating Officer and CFO at Live Intent and has overall responsibility for key operational teams within the company and finance. Brett's focus is on helping his teams operate with excellence as they help their customers win using the power of email as people verified media channel. Brett brings over 25 years of executive leadership from serving as CEO to three separate technology companies, including Acopia, an open source e-commerce platform that was acquired by Red Hat Software. Brett has also advised and coached hundreds of technology executives. He's a passionate trail runner and a student of leadership. Brett, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, you're living in a good place to do trail running, living in Utah. Absolutely. You know, it's one of my great passions. You know, it's something I've fallen into relatively later in life. I used to do a lot of road running and I really enjoyed that. But uh, to be able to combine my love for running with getting outside and truly being in the mountains, on the trails, being away from cars, sometimes frankly being away from people uh yeah. it, it's it's just a great thing it's pretty awesome i live in um i split my time between uh, vancouver british columbia and then down in scottsdale arizona and i used to do a lot of trail running up here in bc and and even some of the hikes i would do any of the hikes i was on i would run the flat sections yes and uh, anybody i was hiking with was just like dude what's the rush and i'm like there's no rush it's just but it's flat like we may as well run this damn thing like why am i gonna walk along a flat trail Exactly. I think one of the great uh, secrets of trail running is you walk up and you run down. And so, okay. uh, yeah, if the trails get too steep, there's no way you're going to be able to run them. And so this notion of going on a, on a trail run for me is a combination of walking and running. And uh, it, that variety also is a part of what's a lot of fun about the, the experience. And you're right about getting away from all the traffic in the cars too. I did my first marathon or my only marathon um, four years ago. And, and unfortunately, that'll be my last run because I got my left hip replaced. Um, oh, no. Due to years of running and and competitive ski racing, I just I did a did its toll and ended up needing to get my left hip replaced. But the recovery was good. I did my first hike. I got it actually replaced four months ago. I did my first hike last week and did an eleven kilometer mountain hike, and it was awesome. So at least I can keep hiking, but I won't be doing any pounding on it anymore. Hey, eleven k is not bad. No complaints. It was good. It was great. Good to be out with my kid too. So tell us about Live Intent, just so we know the background of um, of the business, and I want to dive into your role there. Sure. Live Intent is the leader in uh, real-time ads delivered in email. If you receive an email newsletter from the likes of the New York Times or any other company, Groupon, for example, you'll in that newsletter likely receive an ad. That ad is delivered dynamically by Live Intent. We connect publishers and advertisers and provide the technology and the infrastructure so that advertisers can deliver the right message at the right time to, um, to the publishing audience, to the likes of the New York Times and so forth. We also have recently sort of uh, taken that business and grown it into an identity business, a business where we're able to help not just ourselves connect brands with people, in email, but also to help other companies do what we're doing in email across the web. Interesting. So you're working like on a consulting um, arm of some of these companies as well, or just as a SaaS model? We provide uh, SaaS-based data. So we have a SaaS model where we deliver a data solution to other media companies, other ad tech companies that enable them to better connect 
their advertisers and their publishers together. As you may know, cookies are an important part of how you connect online and cookies don't work like they used to work. And so our solution doesn't require third-party cookies and it enables people using first-party cookies, which are still very valid and important in today's ecosystem to be able to connect using that, uh, that sort of first-party data using what we'll call a hashed email address. This is obviously sort of some of the nuances of an ad tech experience, but because we're active in email, because we see email everywhere, um, we don't actually see the actual email address that's um, considered personal information, but we see a hashed version of that. And that becomes then a way in which we can connect, again, the advertiser, the publisher, and the individual with the right ad at the right time in the right environment. And who do you sell through? Do you sell direct to these companies or do you sell direct or, or through channels like through ad agencies as well? So we'd sell direct. We've got direct relationships with all of our publishing partners. And then we also sell direct advertisers and also use third-party DSPs where agencies and other advertising um, conglomerates tend to play. Interesting. Very cool model. How um, Talk about your, the business itself and the size of the company so we understand it's kind of the scope of the operations. The company is about 10 years old. I'm based in New York City. Um, we have about 180 employees. Our, our offices in New York, along with offices in Chicago, Berlin, and Copenhagen. A lot of our development occurs in Europe, where we've got just a very strong technical talent base, uh, a group of data scientists that are really second to none. And uh, when we combine their expertise in using data effectively, with the access we have to the media market in the U.S., it's it's been a it's been a, just a great success. Obviously, now that we're in a COVID world, uh, our New York office is um, certainly there, but uh, no one's working in it. We're all working remotely. We have people sort of spreading across the United States as they've sort of tried to find the place that makes it easiest for them to work. And that's been a fun part of our adaption to this COVID world is to be able to um, be a little more flexible in terms of how we work with our teams. And the, the remarkable thing is we've gone through this um, horrific pandemic is to see the, uh, the resilience of the team and to receive the, the resilience of our offering in the marketplace. We've been able to thankfully been able to see real success, real strength in our model and in our success over these last few months. Interesting. Yeah, you will see and you will continue to see it too. It's funny to think about the empty office spaces. I remember walking to school years ago and, and there was this old couple that, that lived down the street on the way to the school and they had this kid's kind of fort in their backyard up in a tree, like a little tree house. Yep. It had been empty for 30 years because their kids had like grown up and left, but they didn't ever take this tree fort down and I remember just seeing this lonely, empty tree fort. I think of like all the all the empty offices that are out there today that are just kind of sitting there. It is, you know, it's going to be a really interesting thing to see how the whole commercial real estate market plays out. Do you think you'll go back to a location-based business at all or will you continue to be remote in some way more than you might have been before? I certainly think we'll be more remote than we were before. Um, mm. I don't think we're going to drop the office. I think offices play an important role and will continue to play an important role in the future business. And I think that we'll just use offices more relevantly. I'm not sure we'll need an office as big as the office we've got. Mm. I'm not sure that we'll um, have everyone come into the office as often as we did. Those are things we're actively evaluating right now. We've got a great team of people that are looking at all the issues. I think that there are a series of very sort of important factors that we've been able to prove out over the last several months that give us great hope that a hybrid model will be best for us and for potentially many other organizations, but certainly for us. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've coached a couple of companies in the technology ad space. One one is called Acceleration Partners. Um, a CEO named Bob Glazier, and and they're completely remote, but 150 employees. They've never ever had an office, and they do all the affiliate marketing for brands like Uber and Apple and Target. Um, and they've been able to run this good business completely remote. No one's ever had an office. And another one out of New York called Elite SEM, which is now called Tenuity. Um, but they were you know, digital, all in offices, and then had to kind of split and, and go remote. They're kind of thinking the same thing. Do, do they go hybrid or so what are you looking at? How do you decide? Well, you know, let me give you a little more background. Prior to being at Live Intent, I was the CEO of a company called Wealth Council, which is a software as a services-based businesses business serving the needs of estate planning attorneys. And at Wealth Council, we were almost entirely virtual when I joined as CEO. And uh over a period of time, we went to from a purely virtual model to a hybrid model where mm. still about 70% of our workforce was remote, but we brought key members of our development team and key members of our sales team into an office. And we found that that hybrid model worked really well. Yeah. There was a certain collaboration, especially in the throes of a development team where the team is working closely together that just worked really well for us in a office environment. And then the sales team as well, there's a, um, a certain sort of camaraderie, a certain sort of uh, sort of talk back and forth that occurs that is almost a smack talk, if you will, of the, uh, yep. of, the, of the room that keeps people going and really gets people motivated to do their best work and that is a very important part of a great sales culture. Now, at Live Intent, we obviously have proven that a sales, a sales team can work very effectively, entirely remote. So um, that, that's been an important improvement. But based on both of those experiences, um, I think that there is a real need for a combination. And I think that for most businesses, um, having a small, uh, having an office presence is important. I think having an environment where people can come together and get connected is important, but also the ability to then benefit from a much broader recruiting pool, from a much more diverse talent base yeah. is also equally important. Um, one of the challenges with working remotely is you have to consider some of the in issues related to what I'll call state tax nexus. So when somebody works remotely, that's just another business, another state in which you need to be filing um, reports and things. And so there are real challenges that you okay. need to consider when you're going remote to understand that it's not just let's do it, let's make it happen. There are state filing requirements that you need to consider as well. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the states actually try to clean that up or if they if they clear that up or if it is going to become a regulatory hurdle for us. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the your transition into um, the company. You you played a CEO role, you told me before, a couple times, a few times before coming in as a COO at Live Intent. So why did you make that transition into this second-in-command role and what was that transition like for you? You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been now CEO of three different organizations. Um, the last one was Wealth Council. The first one was Acopia. Um, and when I, and the middle one was called uh, Willow Stick Technologies. Uh, and they're all very different organizations. And in between when I would do that work as a CEO, I often would do consulting work, advisory work to companies, and had a lot of fun meeting organizations. One of the companies I met during that time was Live Intent. Matt Kaiser, who's our CEO, and I go back about now, um, almost 15 years. And uh, when I first did some consulting for him at a company he was the prior um, head of. And so for me, it was much more about potentially working with Matt than it was about me being uh, taking on a particular role. 
uh, having been the CEO of three organizations, what I've realized is there's um, at some level something very important about being CEO and something that's also very challenging about being a CEO. And there's a certain mantle that you wear as a CEO that is um, burdensome and uh, just heavy and, and lonely, if you will. And so for me, being able to be able to help a friend, to be a part of a team, and to not carry that mantle was very appealing to me. I mean, when I left um, uh, Wealth Council, I said, I'm done being CEO. I've done it. I've done all that I wanted to do. I'm going to continue to do some consulting and some uh, coaching and some other things. But then the call came and uh, the reality was, is it was something that I would love to do, which is to be able to support, help, encourage uh, foster, uh, advise, but not have to be that CEO. So for me, it's actually a luxury to to be able to serve in this capacity. So tell us about kind of what that mantle is that you're wearing as a CEO or what that burden is, because I think you're, you're right. And a lot of the COOs know that it's different, but they haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand. So can you walk us through some of the specific things that maybe are different or are tough for the CEO so that as COOs, as second in commands, we know how to support them better? Uh, thank you. Um, love to be able to sort of dig in. First of all, I think that the most important um, part of the mantle is the sense that if it is to be, it is up to me. It is on your mm-hmm. shoulders. There is this notion that, yes, there are other people supporting you. There are other people that are doing great work that are central to your success. But there is something uniquely sort of heavy about saying the company is on my shoulders. I report to the board of directors. Um, they look to me as the one person who is solely and completely responsible. If there's a problem in the organization, at some level, it's my problem. I can't say that's not my responsibility or that's not my issue. All issues, all responsibilities eventually flow to the CEO. And so as a COO, I can say that not every responsibility flows to me. And so because of that, there is a real, um, there's that, that would be one major distinction. I also think that, um, when you think about the CEO, there is often an element of a founder in that CEO's sort of perspective. And so if you're a founder CEO and you've created this company and you've grown it and it's yours and you're deeply passionate about it, if you're a COO and you're not with that founder, meaning you didn't co-found the organization, you often bring a different perspective and you don't bring quite the same um, sort of passion maybe or that quite the same ownership that the founder CEO feels. And so to me, those two things are critical differences between many CEOs and many COOs and organizations. You know what ties in nicely with both of those as well? On One on the, the mental state of the CEO is it's a very lonely position because they can't really tell the board everything. You know, they can't <laughs> tell the board that they're scared or worried or fearful. They need to tell the most of the truth, but they need to, otherwise the board's going to be scared shitless. Right. And they, and they can't really go down to the team and go, I don't know what I'm doing, or this is the biggest thing I've ever done. I don't fucking know what's, or I'm, I'm worried. So they need to tell you, but they can't really tell everybody else. So they really live in this really weird, that's why I love the CEOs to get involved with like YPO and become a YPO mm. member, or get into mastermind groups for them because they need a place to talk to their peer group. But then the second thing, especially with the entrepreneurial CEOs, this is the biggest thing they've ever done in their life. That's right. Every day, the company just got bigger than it's ever been. And they don't know what they're doing. Like, I, I remember meeting with the CEO of Sprint um, in his office, Marcelo, and he goes like, when are people not going to be the problem? I'm like, dude, you're the 82nd largest company in the US. You're still trying to figure this out. Like, it never gets easier for them. That's so true. So how do you balance out the, um, I think this is an art. How do you balance out 
when the CEO is doing something wrong or when you disagree with them, how do you bring your point across and tell them what you think? Or how do you show them their blind spots without getting their back up against the wall? Yeah. Um, it, it certainly, having been in that seat, it, it's easier to do now that I'm not in that seat. And I think that the first of all is to acknowledge the fact that the world is on their shoulders, at least the company is on their shoulders, and that you, you're aware of the challenges that they're facing. But really, it depends on really understanding the person. And again, we are, when it comes right down to it, just people, whether you're the CEO, the COO, the CFO, um, a lead software developer, a junior level salesperson, we are all people. And mm. the, the sooner we can all just come to terms with that, the better. Meaning that as a CEO, if I look at you as being somehow a form of deity, you know, somehow some, something special or different, um, I might act differently and or not give the same level of feedback if I just saw you as another human being trying to do and be their very best. And so for me, giving advice to Matt and to CEOs in general is all about understanding them and understanding what makes them tick. I believe deeply in the use of personality profiles and in really trying to understand the human being and that using that information, you're in much better position to be able to then guide the conversation. So for example, I know that Matt's very visionary and has incredible ideas that are at the forefront of the industry and are critical to our success. And not every one of his ideas would be right. And so for me, it's not about saying Matt, it's not about every idea, but there are some things we need to look at. And typically those conversations occur in private. They occur at a time when I know he's going to be open to listening. He's not super busy or we've at least created enough time where he can slow down and take a moment. Um, it often comes with me being prepared with data to support my viewpoints. Um, it's super easy uh, to say that we disagree. It's much harder to say, here's why we disagree and here's the data to support a different point of view. I often tend to not make it about me as a human being too. It'd be more about the idea. So Matt has ideas, I have ideas, and let's talk about the ideas versus let's talk about us disagreeing. And I think that those two things have gone a long ways towards making a difference. I'm also aware that sometimes the different forms of communication make a bigger, diff bigger difference. Sometimes it needs to be written. Sometimes it needs to be in person. Sometimes it needs to be charts and graphs. And sometimes it just needs to be a good story. And so picking your analogies, picking your stories, uh, picking the data is all about that process. And to me, it really is this notion of being able to hear and understand where they're coming from. Make sure they understand that you understand where they're coming from. And then you can have a conversation. Yeah, Steve once said this great, uh, you've certainly heard it, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that that's really at, at the basis of this whole notion. Were you and Matt friends before you joined his organization? We were. And in fact, so maybe not friends is the best way to describe it, but um, we worked together. And so uh, when he was at a prior company, I came in and did some consulting work for him. We developed a, a deep personal relationship in the sense that he trusted me, I trusted him. And so we just kept talking and I became his coach over a period of time and began to give him some advice there. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about our relationship is we're very different people, um, very different perspectives, 
um, have very different upbringings and, uh, and just bring a, just a very, so we're, we're not two peas of a pod, if you will. We just look at the world quite differently. And wow. that's actually been a great key to our success is to see that we see the world differently and we're able to respect that we don't see this, uh, things in quite the same way. So it's powerful. It's also, you know, complicated at times too then. So you, you mentioned personality profiles. Which ones do you like and how do you use them? So we use the predictive index at Live Intent. I've used Berkman uh, prior. I've used um, human factors, um, the acumen profile. I've used a profile called Taze, which was originally used with the Navy SEALs. And they're all different. And then there's Myers-Briggs and things like that that are more um, just more mainstream. But the most important thing to remember about it is, is just one view of how the person sees themselves. Mm. Almost all personality profiles are just self, you know, you, you administer them. It's not like how other people see you. There could be a 360 component to it. But so much of it is, is how do I see myself based on the questions that are asked? And right. so if you look at it like that, then you could say, this is how Matt sees himself, or this is how I see myself. And uh, using the predictive index, which is a great one because it gives you these common terms to describe a typical personality profile. And none of them are necessarily good or bad. They're just all different. And so for me, I'm a maverick as it uh, relates to the predictive index, which is a combination of sort of playing by the rules and breaking the rules all at the same time. So thinking outside the box, um, lots of sort of innovation at the same time, still using process procedures to make things happen. And so knowing that about me and knowing that Matt is very much a visionary is helpful for us as we work together. Still trying to find the box. People keep talking about getting outside the box. I'm like, where's the box? Where is that? Yeah, you, exactly. In fact, I, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a funny story here. Um, you know, there's a group called the Arbinger Institute, and they wrote a book um, about the box and about getting outside the box. And the funny thing about their box is whenever you think you're outside the box, you're in the box. And so the, the notion of being able to uh, truly be outside the box is, is probably a, a figment of our imagination. We are, whether we're in the box, we're in the matrix we're in something for sure yeah there's something there for sure um the uh have you ever come across the colby profile mm -hmm. colby's interesting as well just because it teaches you how you start projects right how you initiate yeah. things and there's something there the weird one that i've come across recently that, that i'm using now inside the business world and this is going to sound hilarious um, i love personality profiles for lots of different reasons on just understanding the people and how to work with them but is the love languages Oh, interesting. And when you think about it, it's the, the five love languages are like words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, um, gifts, and uh, I don't remember what the other one is, but um, the, the five, that's all people really need to be appreciated. You know, a tap right. on the back or a hug in the morning or, you know, um, lots of praise. And, and you realize like, wow, like maybe they just need time. Like, hey, do you want to go for coffee? And you bring the love languages into work with your team and it's crazy the impact that starts to have. So we've actually introduced that now. Yeah, you know, I love that. And one of the things that is most interesting about the love languages, and I think applying that to work, is we often uh, tend to think of that as so inappropriate at work. I mean, why would you ever be talking about this notion of a close, intimate connection with another person? Um, and yet, at, at some level, we are we spend more time with the people at work than we spend with any other group of people. Yeah, and the intimate connection is just is just the connection of humanity, right? It's not like we're going to have sex with each other. But yeah, like, of course, could, and I think that's exactly right. But I think that this form of 
connection, intimacy is, if you just think about it in a, an erotic sort of way, that's certainly not what we're talking right. about. But in terms of thinking about it, just in terms of humanity connecting with each other, it's absolutely critical. Powerful. And I think that into, so I'll call empathy is really this sort of the currency of uh, intimacy. And mm. if we're able to be empathetic, then that goes a long ways. And again, that comes back to what we talked about in terms of getting, giving feedback. If you're empathetic in your feedback versus saying, man, this guy's just flipped the bozo bit. Um, it's a whole different perspective in terms of how you will work to provide feedback and to interact. So let's talk, talk about that as it relates to your team and your direct reports and kind of coaching and, and um, leading people. How, how do you lead your team? How do you coach them? How do you? Yeah, I, I'm very much a, a sort of a, a leader of uh, people versus a leader of projects versus a leader of sort of goals and objectives. All those things are important, but it starts and ends with people. And that I'm a long time in coming to that conclusion. Um, early on in my career, it was all about delivering results. It was all about um, sort of crossing things off the list. It was all about um, achieving. And uh, what I realized is that if you just focus on achievement, you often don't pay close enough attention to the things that matter a lot more, which um, to me were relationships and the mm. relationships that are central because um, success is ephemeral. I mean, it comes and it goes, but the relationships you have with people are what's really stand the test of time. And I've come to the belief that it's one of the few things you can really keep with you are these relationships. And so for me, um, as I've evolved as a leader, I've worked much more diligently to be understanding of the team and to help them thrive and to really grow and evolve. And so um, I would call myself a, a coach more than anything else as a leader. I'm helping individuals to establish what they want to accomplish. I'm giving them feedback in ways that will help them grow and develop. I want them to eventually at some point take my job or to, to be able to certainly take their job to the next level. And so by having that mentality, it really changes the way in which I approach leadership, which is to be very much people first, which is to ensure that I understand where they want to go. And if I can help them get where they want to go, they will be much happier and more fulfilled at work if we're able to make that happen. Mm. And together we can then accomplish great things. And if where they want to go isn't where we're going, it's better to know that and then to help them find where they want to go and make that happen as well. And uh, so all in, it's just understanding that people's passions are the pretty much the strongest thing there is. And if you find you're able to connect somebody's passion to the work that needs to be done, then you'll see great success. That's pretty insightful as well. Just to understand that, that, you know, if somebody's path isn't necessarily staying in our company and it's to go somewhere else, our job is to help them go do that. No different than, you know, growing our kids you know, it'd be nice to have our kids live at home with us forever, but at some point they got to, they got to move out, right? Like, well, you know, there comes a point. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, trust me, I'm, my kids are 17 and 19. I'm like, trust me, you're moving out soon. Like now, um, come back and visit often, but you know, it'd be nice to be able to have them around, but no, that my job is to get them out of the house. My job right. is to grow them into these independent kids. Um, I, I and saw, just think about how different that is at work. So often we think I need to keep this person where they are so they can help us be successful. And right. so it, it's just when you flip that on its uh, on its head, it it changes the way you become, you, you understand you need to backfill a fair amount. You need to help sort of grow those lower ranks so that you can continue to have a pipeline of people growing and developing through an organization. And again, that you create this uh, newness and yet this uh, path of excellence where people can grow, develop, move on, or take the next step. 
Well, and, you, and you're, their employees really see that you care about them when you're really, really focused on them and their growth for their own purposes, they're going to go through brick walls for you to build the company. Yeah. So how do you, um, do you have one-on-one -on -one meetings with your team? I do. I do and group meetings. So we, we both meet one-on-one -on -one every week and then as a group every week. So I, I wrote a book recently um, called Meetings Suck, just to teach people how to actually run meetings and how to participate in them and what meetings you need to run. But I'm curious, can you walk us through how you run your group meeting first and then how you run a one-on-one -on -one meeting? Kind of walk us sure. through what a typical... Uh, typically, a, a group meeting would start and end with something fun, something humorous, just a way to sort of break the ice. So a, an icebreaker, maybe somebody will share a video, maybe there'll be a joke, maybe what you did over the weekend or whatever. Um, and we're doing more of that in our meetings because we just don't naturally do it around the water cooler right now because there is no water cooler. Yeah. Um, but then the actual substance of the meeting is to basically... Uh, sort of work back to what our OKRs are. We're an OKR-focused organization, so we use objectives and key results to track um, our both goals and how we're doing with respect to those goals. And so each person has a set of OKRs that they're then tracking to. They will talk about what they're doing to achieve those goals over the past week, um, what are the roadblocks they're facing. That's where I step in and will say, well, what can I do to support that or what can others do? What do we need to do collectively? to um, break down those barriers or obstacles. And then we will end with typically a bigger, deeper discussion on one or two topics that's relevant to the business. Maybe it's um, what's the big issue we're facing? What are some of the challenges that exist across the organization? Um, for example, during this moment of Black Lives Matters that we've been sort of uh, really immersed in and it's been super powerful for us as an organization to be able to um, better connect the dots than we have had s historically and uh, we've talked a lot about that as a group and so that's been an example of one of these topics that's really formed the basis of, a, of really important changes that we've uh, taken on in the organization as it relates to um, diversity and inclusion and what we're doing with respect to that so again start with um, something fun OKRs in the middle big strategic topic at the end. Interesting, cool. And that, that runs for what, like an hour? At the most. And I think that um, if we can keep it to 45 minutes, great. Uh, there's no need to take any more time than it, it certainly takes. Yeah, I always say it's like a quickie. You can get it done in less time if you need to. Right? Yep, exactly. It doesn't have to go. And I, I love the Google thing where you can set your, your meeting stand at 50 minutes to the hour so that you don't have to then think, have everything go up to just the final moment. Yeah, I finish everything five minutes early. So whatever I, whenever I schedule it, if I schedule it for 20 minutes, we finish in 15. If I schedule it for two hours, we finish at 155. And that way I have time to go down the hall and talk to my assistant, get a cup of coffee, sit down and start yep. on time. Yeah, everything finishes five minutes early. That's great. It's just, I, I got really kind of anal retentive about that. So now you're one-on-one -on -one meeting. So you've got a direct report. Just give us a traditional kind of normal one-on-one. -on -one. Yep. So what we'll do here, because we talked about the OKRs in the group meeting, we tend not to do that. And so typically it will be very focused on a specific set of issues that they've just learned about that I need to be aware of. So it'd be in the mode of what do you need to communicate to me that's going on in your organization? Maybe there's somebody who's getting ready to quit, or maybe there's a need to make a change in a particular reporting structure, as an example, other issues like that. And we'll use um, a software program called 15Fives. Um, it, which is a, just a way which to sort of collaborate. I'm an advisor and an investor and potentially I was the original seed idea for that business with David Hassel 10 years ago. Oh, at fantastic. A, at a Warren Buffett event. I told him about a 15.5 program I used that I learned from Starbucks and he built yep. a whole company around our discussion in a bar. 
Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. And so we use that and it's a way, so we'll do our one-on-one meetings right through that. They'll, throughout the course of the week, we'll then add things to their one-on-one. And so it's not like, so often in one-on-ones, it's like, well, what are we going to talk about? Well, what, it's just what happened last yesterday or what just happened this morning instead of what really needs to occur. And by putting things into the one-on-one, when they occur, then it's easier in the moment of the meeting to be able to, to have a true conversation about the real issues versus just the last issue on the table. I'll link to uh, 15.5 as well. What I love about the software is the employees, it takes them 15 minutes to fill out. It takes us five minutes to read it. It's, it's amazing that the stuff that they'll actually put in writing that they normally would either forget or wouldn't necessarily say, but it's, it's kind of like texting somebody. You often have more courage to just throw it out there than you would in real life. And they write stuff down like, I'm really pissed at so-and-so in this other department. Then it's like, oh, shit, I guess we have to talk about that now. Or I'm really struggling with this. It's, it's really insightful and it's a great tool for both people. Yeah, and, and that would be the aspect of 15.5 for those who don't know that is focused on basically giving feedback. So at the end of every week, you're able to say, how are you doing? What's going well? What's going poorly? And that's that sort of thing independently of just of the one-on-one meeting. So you also are able to connect in it, uh, connect to it OKRs, which is another way in which we're using it. So between OKRs, the weekly sort of check-in, and then the one-on-ones, it's been a great tool for us. Awesome. Um, you just reminded me of somebody else who, who I had on the podcast. It was Matt McGinnis from a company called Rippling. And he created something called the operating manual for Matt. And it was, you know, we're talking about how do we learn about our employees and support our employees and get to know them through personality profiles. He wrote a three-page bio about himself, about his idiosyncrasies and what he's like as a jerk or what he's like as a leader or how he might micromanage at the wrong time or how he shows up if he's stressed. And he, he gives that to every employee so they can learn about their boss before they have to start working with them. I'm like, wow, that's, that's great. Awesome. Like, that's yeah, so- you know, this, you, you create authenticity, you create disclosure, you create vulnerability. And uh, um, I think all those things are critical. We, we often underestimate how distant we can be perceived as being from people that report to us. And yeah. whether you're a CEO or COO, uh, you can feel a long ways away from a rank and file employee. And anything you can do to bridge that gap is uh, very important. It's like my ex-wife could certainly tell my girlfriend a lot about me that, you know, <laughs> fast forward that all learning yeah. her. Exactly. Um, all right. How about staying on the same page with your CEO? How do you stay on the same page with their vision? And how do you get him to stay on the same page with your plans? How do you guys keep in sync? You know, I, I, that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge for just about everybody because plans don't necessarily, or I should say vision doesn't necessarily play by plans. Uh, it can, it can sometimes, sometimes come at a, a, an odd moment. It can come at a, in the middle of the night. It can come just as you're getting ready to start something else. And so what we try and do is to create an environment where ideas are never sort of off limits. We always are saying, what's new? What are the opportunities facing? And that in many cases will be folded into the current set of plans or we'll put them on a parking lot and make sure that we don't forget about them. So in the future, we're able to then move forward. We use a little sheet that we basically say, here are our top priorities. And it's separate from the OKRs because they typically tend to be a little more visionary, a little more further out. These are the things that we're not quite ready to fully operationalize, but that we need to test, we need to prove out, we need to iterate around. And so that's where Matt is, that's what he's doing. And then as COO, what I'm doing is basically taking the stuff that is now closer and getting ready for prime time and making sure that we're able to operationalize that. We have this notion of operating with excellence 
And for me, that's really critical. And so what we try and do is ensure that we're operating with excellence around things that there's some consistency with, a sales process, a um, process for um, supporting customers, a process for approving legal documents. But we tend not to sort of over-processize or systematize things that are in that nascent stage of being proven out. So trying to create space for ideas to be uh, free-flowing and where we're able to test them out in an iterative, entrepreneurial way. And then when they're ready, bring them into the, uh, the more uh, highly operational parts of the business. Awesome. How do you decide when an idea or when a project gets green-lighted versus when it's kind of yellow light, like we're going to do it but not yet, or, or red, like we're never going to touch it? How do you, what's your system for that? Well, we obviously have a strategy and our strategy is something we, we go back to all the time. It's a way in which we're ensuring we've got um, good OKRs. And so for us, it's sort of like, is this aligned with our strategy or not? Because to me, a strategy is nothing more than the, the cumulative sum of things that you say yes to and you say no to that will lead you to the success or to the, to the, the outcome you're looking for. So if we want to go out and climb this mountain, What's the trail we're going to take to get there? Your strategy is the trail you're going to take. And so as long as it sort of fits within the context of how we go to market or which customer segments we're focused on or what products we've got, it's a lot easier. Um, I think as you start, start saying, well, it's a different business model or it's a different group of customers or a different product or it's going to require different capabilities, then you start saying, well, that's going to be harder to say yes to because we're going to have to do something that is going to break what we've currently got. If we're able to stick within that sort of framework of the right product, the right customers, the right go-to-market model, the right business model, then it's a lot easier. And so we tend to use those sorts of terms to describe and, and to make decisions around. If they Maybe if just one of those things is different, it's the same product, it's the same business model, but a different group of customers, that's an easier yes. And if I say it's a different product, it's a different business model, it's a different group of customers, and it's a different um, go-to-market, then say, no, no, never, you know, not, not for us. It sounds like your CEO is probably past the whole entrepreneurial seizure and the entrepreneurial ADD stage, right? Where everything's a great idea. Let's do it now. Well, you know, I think that it's important that we never truly get beyond those stages because sometimes um, if you get too locked and loaded, you'll miss something new. You'll miss an opportunity. And I think that Matt is very good at being able to stay entrepreneurial and that um, at the same time, what we do is we bring those conversations back to reality. So to me, it, it is, it's a mistake to be just too locked in and to not consider things that would be outside the box, if you will, um, meaning outside those six different constructs. But I, I do think that um, certainly you evolve and you get more mature over time, but we really try hard to stay um, innovative and to understand that as Clayton Christensen talked about in his book, um, Innovator's Dilemma, you just can't get there with what got you here. I mean, you're going to have to continue to reinvent yourself. And mm -hmm. if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. Curious question on, on, um, just on, on the business itself and kind of your unique abilities. What parts of your business do you outsource? There are certainly, um, key uh, development capabilities that uh, are easier to outsource than to hire internally. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a technology partner that we work closely with that is an important part of our overall development structure. We have certain operational components, um, especially on the ad operation side that are very 
um, manual that are very um, sort of labor intensive and it's easier to work with partners in different parts of the world to help make that happen. Um, we obviously use classic services, whether it be outsourced um, experts around privacy, um, uh, security. We're also looking at uh, obviously um, legal talent and accounting talent and all those things where you're using outside resources we're, are we're sort of are integrated with us. But in general, other than the tech and some of the operations, um, we're basically, um, we've, we've built an organization that handles it from soup to nuts. Yeah, but it's good though, because you are actually, you are out, outsourcing some parts that some companies wouldn't even think of, of outsourcing. Like even when you said we, we're outsourcing some of the operational, some would be like, why would we ever do that? Um, whereas others, uh, yeah, it, it's sometimes very hard for people to let go of some areas that it'll never be their unique ability. And the more bandwidth they spend on it and cycle time they spend on stuff they're never going to be great at, they're taking away the time from the stuff they could be world class at. That's right. And, and we've learned that. And we've learned that there are um, the things that you're, you've got to be really good at something. Uh, you know, the difference between having a strength and a super strength is about 10x from my perspective, mm -hmm. whether that's you as a human being or um, you as a company. And so if I said I could play the piano, doesn't mean I can really play the piano. And somebody who can play the piano is maybe 10 or even 100 times better than somebody who can play the piano. Right. And I think that if you look at it from that perspective, that think about that from a company perspective too. And a great software developer is often 10 or 20 times more productive than just a run-of-the-mill software developer. And so if you can find people that bring just tremendous expertise, that's what we did in Copenhagen. We acquired a company called Moin back in 2015. And Moin brought these great data science, uh, these great data scientists to Live Intent. And I think if we had just started in New York and hired a few people and done some things, it could have been good. But the fact we went out there and we found an organization that was the right organization for us to, to acquire, it was at some level an insourcing of an outsource model, if you will. Mm, sure, makes sense. Um, I had a couple of questions just related to, to you and your growth, and then we, we can wrap up. But the in terms of kind of 10xing our own growth or 10xing ourselves, where have you worked on yourself over the years in terms of your skill set? Have you, have you had areas that you've focused on more than others? So for me, there are two different ways about thinking about that. One is I need to get better at me. And so to me, that's better understanding me. That's understanding the way my mind works, what makes me tick, understanding my mental models and understanding the, the experiences I've had that influence the way I respond to things. So often when I get sort of strongly emotional, maybe I'm getting angry or uh, disappointed or whatever the case may be, I'll look at, whoa, what's going on there? And for me, that gives me an opportunity to sort of be introspective and say, what about my world is causing me to react so strongly to that situation? So as I get better at understanding that, I'm able to evolve and become more uh, flexible as a human being. So that would be one aspect of my growth and development. And then from a skills and a um, sort of a capabilities perspective, I am a lifelong learner. I've been reading and studying and growing at every possible moment. And I, I see that as a, an important part of my success. And so whether it's learning how to code as I did years ago, whether it's, and that's really where I started out. My very first company that I started as a teenager was a software development organization where we were developing programs for local school districts on the Apple II computer. So this was a long time ago, but again, love that learning experience to learning about economics in college to 
being able to learn much more about the world at large by just reading voraciously biographies uh, of the world and taking all that information to say, what can I do to be better? I would say that a couple of key skills have been very important to me. Number one is the ability to tell a great story is mm. something that it, it really informs my effectiveness. The ability to be able to listen carefully and to hear carefully what people are saying is another very important skill. And then you cannot underestimate your need to be analytically strong. I think that in today's world, we're more data-driven than ever. And so I take a lot of time and effort to try and hone my skills analytically to ensure that I'm in a position to where I can look at a chart, I can look at data, and I can make not just a uh, sort of flippant choice, but a really well-thought-through choice because the data is there. If you can take the data, you're likely to be able to find the answer that will really drive the, the right level of decision-making. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of something I heard roughly from Google years ago, which was, I don't care what you think, what's the data say? Yeah, exactly. All right, let's go back to your 22-year-old self. You're just graduating college. You're getting ready to start out in your career. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? When you've got an idea, run with it. I think that early on in my career, I would second-guess myself and say, is that idea good enough? Is that idea really strong enough? And the answer would, in many cases, be no, but that would lead me to the next idea and the next idea and the next idea, which would then lead to the idea. And so um, just running at ideas and um, not stopping and letting your fears just fly out the window and just be headlong into turning ideas into reality would be the advice I gave. It took me 10, 15 years to figure that out. And uh, when I did, it was truly transformative for me. That feels like the hero's journey. We're right back to running again. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> you know, it is one big circle. And Joseph idea. Campbell was absolutely right in the, in the hero's journey. It is one, one big journey. And once you've gone back out and you come back, you slayed the dragon, you've come back to the village and shared what you've learned, it's time to do it all over again. And I love doing that. I'm glad we're back to running again. Brett, uh, Brett Penninger, this Chief Operating Officer from Live Intent, thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Been a pleasure. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.